will jump right into God's word. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time of worship we've been able to extol your name, to lift you on high, to tell you how much we love you and need you. Now, God, as we looked into your word, which is living and active, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, your Holy Spirit would lead. It wouldn't be by my words, but by your might and your power and your Holy Spirit that does any work in our lives, God. So we're grateful that you teach us from your word. So may that happen this morning right now. We pray in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, almost every one of us has probably had the unpleasant experience of being made to feel like we're an outsider, right? Some kind of an outsider, whether it's at some point of our life, whether it's because of our talent or lack thereof, or whatever, our looks, our gender, our personality type, our race, whatever. I mean, it's a horrible, terrible feeling to feel like an outsider. And a good illustration of being an outsider is found in one of Dr. Seuss's lesser known stories called The Sneetches. Who's heard of the story of the Sneetches? All right, right on. The Sneetches, in case you don't remember, the story of the Sneetches, these Sneetches, they're tall, yellow, as you see there on the screen, they're tall, yellow creatures who live on, Sneetches live on what? Beaches, of course. It's Dr. Seuss. Sneetches live on beaches. In, in, in Dr. Seuss's story, these creatures are divided into two groups, okay? Those who have green stars on their bellies and those that don't have green stars. Now, the green starred Sneetches comprise the in crowd, okay? They're in. They're, uh, they're, they're not outside. They're the insiders. I mean, they, they build these exclusive campfires around which they sing their special little songs, but the Sneetches without green stars on their bellies, they're considered outsiders. I mean, they're considered the losers. Well, one day, a fix-it-up chappy named Sylvester McMonkey McBean comes to town with a strange contraption called a star-on machine. For, for mere $3, Sneetches can line up and get a green star on their bellies. Now, naturally, all the no-star Sneetches, they jump at this chance. The, you know, the in-crowd Sneetches are no longer distinct, this, and this upsets them very much. But Sylvester McMonkey McBean also has a star-off machine. For $10, you can get your star, which defined you. you. You can get your star, which defined you as the in-person, removed now, and distinct, thus distinguishing yourself from everybody else. So this back and forth, you know the story, it goes back and forth and it escalates until, doc, as Dr. Seuss says, neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was that one or what one was was who. <laughs> so, interesting story. Well, in today's passage, believe it or not, we're not going to look at the book of Dr. Seuss. We're going to look in the Bible. In today's passage in the, math, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to look at three stories that have to do with outsiders, okay? Outsiders. And really, we're going to see how Jesus has the power and authority to make insiders out of those who are outsiders in God to God's kingdom, okay? And we're going to see how, actually, we're going to continue on as we, towards the end, we're going to see how as his disciples, we actually play a pivotal role in that process with him. So let's jump in right. Let's start. We're in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first eight verses is where our first story is. Well, here it goes. It says this. 
And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, you are, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, if you remember last week, at the end of our sermon last week, we looked at how Jesus heals these two demon-possessed men. Okay, now him and his disciples now get back in this boat, and they head back over to Jesus, really his adopted hometown of Capernaum, where he had all, remember, he had healed the centurion's servant, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, uh, and many, many other people. So you can imagine, after, G- after all that happened, Jesus comes back, you can imagine news that he's back must have spread like wildfire. People said, he's back. All right, remember what he did? He is back in town. Well, we see in verse 2 that some people bring to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Like, so, but unlike Mark here, unlike Mark and Luke, you've probably read their stories before. They, they, when they talk about this encounter, unlike, unlike them, Matthew leaves out some details, really, I think, so he can focus really just on what Jesus has to say. He wants people just to be, that to be the focus. So Matthew leaves out some details that I'll tell you about as you remember. What happens is Jesus is in this small house, okay? And he's teaching people and it's standing room only. It is just packed in there. When all of a sudden appear four men with a paralyzed man on a makeshift bed, probably more like a stretcher. And because that crowd is so full in there, they climb to the top. Remember, they climb on top of the house, dig a hole. I'm sure to the owners, not very happy about that. They dig a hole and they lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. I mean, that must have been the weirdest thing. Jesus, you know, expounding on his all of a sudden, you know, stuff starts falling down there. What the heck? And all of a sudden, this guy gets lowered down. Okay, we see it. Now, the cool thing is we see that Jesus takes note of their faith. That's the first thing he does. He says he notices their faith. It's faith that causes them to be doing whatever. They didn't just get there and go, oh, maybe tomorrow. No, they went, no, we know this is the guy. This is the guy that has the power and authority to do incredible miracles. So they're willing to destroy someone else's home and to mess with whatever's going on in there in order to get their friend healed. And Jesus sees this faith. Then he tells the man, he tells this man, he looks at him, and he goes, take heart. He says, don't worry. Everything is going to be just fine. Everything's going to be all right, if you're Bob Martin. Um, You see, this man was considered, you got to understand, this man was considered by society to be an outcast, So here's the crazy thing back then. Back then, if you had some sort of disability, what they would automatically do is they would link that to sin. Oh, there must be some kind of sin in your life. You must have done something that God is judging you for that. Now, Jesus totally refutes this later. But here's what Jesus does. In in something nobody expected. Now, this probably had to really blow people away. And I'm sure everyone, including the paralytic, was probably expecting, okay, I know what he can do. He's going to heal me. And everybody's going, okay, here it comes. Watch what he does. 
This guy's going to get up and dance. Watch. I bet something really cool, something really cool has happened. Because remember, they had seen or at least heard about the healing of the leper. Remember the leper, the centurion servant. They'd heard all this stuff. Some of them didn't see it. They're like, okay, I've told you. This is, you're going to see like I saw. Watch. Watch what happens. So check out what Jesus does. Jesus has more in mind than just restoring this man to society. He shows true mercy by meeting this man's deepest need. The biggest need that he has first. He wants to meet that first. Not only that of healing from sickness, disease, or from poverty. Not from paralysis of body, but paralysis of the soul. He wants to free this man from the grip of sin and guilt and shame. So Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. Totally blotted out. Totally taken care of. Taken care of it all. Now, this is probably not what the man was, and his friends were wanting to hear. They're like, oh, 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 wait a second. Uh, This guy can't walk. He's an outcast. What's going on here? You see, to restore the man's health would probably have saved this guy decades of suffering, right? But restoring his soul would save him from an eternity of suffering. That's what Jesus was getting at. Our felt needs or physical needs may be great, We might realize, I have some big needs here, but they will never be as great as our need for forgiveness. Not even close. Not even close. I love what 19th century theologian Horace Bushnell says. He said, forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Tweet that. (laughs) What a great saying. Forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Now we see in verse 3 that this doesn't go over really well with the religious people. Remember, a lot of things Jesus does does not go over well with the religious folks. So the scribes, they're, they're, they're present. And remember, these guys were experts at the law. Remember, they were experts at teaching it. They were experts at interpreting the Old Testament law. So, of course, they're really perturbed when they hear, when they hear what he says. So they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Wait. Who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sin. Who does he think he is? So they quickly declare what? They say right away, this guy's blaspheming. He's blaspheming, which means he's speaking sacrilegiously about God. He can't do that, which back in that day, the penalty was stoning, was death. So you cannot do that. Now, being all-knowing God, Jesus knew not just what these guys were saying, but he knew what they were thinking. Okay, he knew deeper. He knew, he saw, Jesus knows exactly what's on these guys' hearts. Later, we're going to see in a few chapters, in chapter 12, Jesus has this to say about the religious leaders. How'd you like this to have this be labeled with this? You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart and mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure, be, bring forth evil. So you guys are a bunch of snakes. You are so evil. Well, I'm sure that really endeared them even more so to Jesus. I'm sure that really went over great. So with that, Jesus asks this rhetorical question. He goes, he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? Well, now, obviously, both of these require supernatural power, yet it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, how would anybody know? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, great. 
How, how do I know? Where's the proof? I, I don't get it. So that's way, that's way easier to say. But to, par- to tell the paralytic to pick up his bed and go home, which was obviously way more difficult, yet easy to see the results. Obviously, the results would be easy. I, oh, yeah, I could see that. But it seems it would be so much harder to do that. In other words, what's happening here is Jesus is saying that if it's, if it's more difficult of the two can be accomplished, then the other one must be really doable, no problem. In other words, if he can heal this man of paralysis, he's the real deal. If this guy gets up, no problem. Jesus is the real deal. And that's precisely what Jesus does. He tells the man to get up, pick up his bed, and go home. And he does. Can you imagine that right in front of everybody? First of all, everybody's just blown away going, they're probably still thinking in their mind, what was this whole forgiveness of sin thing? What was that? What was that about? So they weren't even, they probably forgot that they were waiting for that big miracle to happen. And now all of a sudden he just gets up and walks, and probably everybody's just flabbergasted. And in doing this, Jesus' power and authority, not only to heal, but to forgive sin as well, is demonstrated for everybody to see. He has the power to forgive sin. And this is a pivotal moment, and we're going to talk about this one. This is a pivotal moment in God's kingdom right now. He not only gave this man a healthy body, but more importantly, he gave this man a healthy soul. Now, we see that the crowd, obviously, is blown away by this. And it says that they glorify God or they praise God because really what they're seeing and what they had previously believed that only God could do, they're seeing this man is doing it. (laughs) What in the world? Only God's supposed to be able to do this. Little do these people know that they are actually witnessing something new happening. Something totally new is happening here. They're witnessing the initiating of the kingdom of God where outsiders are now invited to be insiders. There's a new thing going, brand new thing, and it starts with forgiveness. Remember, it was always about the Jewish people and then the Gentiles, everybody else. No, a new thing is happening here. He's forgiven sin. He's opening the doors, flinging them open. This is a new thing that's getting started. You see, oftentimes our felt needs aren't our greatest needs. They're just not. You can't promise someone that if they're ill, that Jesus will heal them the way that they would like to be healed. You can't promise them that. But you can promise them, and I can promise those of you in this room that haven't experienced this yet, that if they have faith in Jesus and in his death and his resurrection, which was really the demonstration of his power and authority, he will forgive. If we believe that, he will forgive of sins. It's not that Jesus can't heal. It's not that Jesus can't heal physical ailments. We've seen him do it, and we, see him, we continue to see him do it today. Yet it's our greater need that Jesus is concerned with. That's what he wants to deal with most. We see in this story that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sin. Okay? Which leads to our next story that demonstrates how Jesus has the power and authority to offer the kingdom to those who live in disobedience, okay? He has the power and authority to offer the kingdom to those who live, bless you, live in disobedience. Let's read this next story. It's from verses 9 to 13. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw that they saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when, they, when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So here we see Matthew, really what he's doing here is reflecting on his own call, okay? Kind of write a little autobiography here. Now you, now you need to understand that what about tax collectors. Tax collectors were some of the most reviled men in Jewish society, okay? Not only did they work for the Roman government, which people despised, it was widely known that tax collectors had a reputation for exacting more than was officially necessary. They were really essentially extortionists. That's what the tax collectors were, asking more than what people really had to pay. I mean, you can actually see how society regarded them uh, and grouped them together. In verse 10, he says, tax collectors and sinners, okay? Sinners meaning those people that pay absolutely no attention whatsoever to the religious rules or regulations. So you see that Jesus is calling Matthew. It makes sense that calling Matthew a tax collector would just blow people away. It would seem absolutely crazy. The guy that he's going to call to be one of his closest associates, to one of his followers, he calls a tax collector? The most despised kind of person in their society? It's had to have blown their minds. And we see that the, the, Matthew records it himself. He says, all it took were two words, follow me. And Matthew was in. He was all in. Immediately, he follows Picture it. One minute, Matthew's sitting at his, they were sitting in a little tax collector booth, and he was collecting his tariffs, you know, for goods that were passing through on the main road, saying, okay, this is what this costs to bring this, what costs to go through here. And the next minute, boom, he's leaving it all behind to follow Jesus. No hesitation. He just does it. In a split second, Matthew shows complete trust in Jesus. And now it's the next scene. I love this next scene. We see that Matthew is so all about Jesus that he's thrown this big old banquet, okay, in, in, in his honor. He's thrown this big banquet in Jesus' honor, and he's invited all his less than savory friends, okay? Matthew did not go, oh, let me see. Oh, you've been kind of not that great. You probably shouldn't come. This guy's kind of a holy guy. No, you know, he's like, come, dudes, come. Let's go. Let's, I gotta, I gotta, you got to meet this guy. So he brings all these guys that are just like him. All the people in society that went, ew, these guys are horrid, horrid people. So this is what I love. And you know, and probably some of you have seen this. This is what I love about new Christians. You ever seen that? Not only are brand new Christians super excited about their newfound faith, it's like they cannot wait to tell everybody around them. It's like where we have gotten kind of like, ooh, I don't know. You know, they know it's this brand new thing to them. It's like, oh my gosh, brand new? What? And they just can't wait to tell people. I love that. And that's exactly what Matthew does here. Now, we understand that in the ancient world, generally a shared meal, this was a sign, a heavy sign of identification, of identifying with other people. This wasn't just like said, okay, Jesus went to these tax collectors' home. What this was saying was Jesus was identifying with them, wanted to enter their world, okay? Especially for a Jewish teacher to do this, Oh my gosh, to go and do this, this much have absolutely blown people away. This was absolutely scandalous for Jesus to do this. 
unbelievable. You see, Jesus shows us here that discipleship isn't merely about for those who might we think are worthy or people we deem as worthy for discipleship. But for those that even sometimes as us as Christians in the Christian community might prefer to keep at arm's length. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I don't need to get into specifics here, but I think we understand. Sometimes we feel like, ooh, you know, they're so bad that, or they're so out there that <clears throat> I don't know about this. Jesus has no notion of that whatsoever. He just dives right in. You see, the Pharisees only see the people's spiritual shortcomings, but Jesus sees their deepest need. What a great example for us. The next time someone says something or we see something or we look on something online and we go, oh, those people. Jesus saw their deepest need first. In verse 11, we see that the religious leaders apparently find one of Jesus' disciples and question him. They say, why would he do this? Why would he associate with this kind of crowd? And in Jesus' response, he addresses, his, he addresses the righteous, the religious leaders' lack of understanding. What he goes, he goes right for the jugular. He goes right for their lack of understanding of what they, especially they, should have known and should have been doing. If these people are so bad, if these people are so sick and they're such in need of spiritual healing, then of course this is where he should be. That's what he's telling them. Where else would you expect? You think you say they're so spiritually corrupt. This is where I need to be then. If you want to heal the sick, what kind of people do you need to associate with? The sick. If you want to minister to the poor, who do you need to associate with? The poor. We have to do that. That's what the message that Jesus is saying here. Now, as if to speak the religious leaders to them in a language that they would, under, would understand better, Jesus goes ahead and he knows this will help. He knows this will get him. He's going to quote from the Old Testament. These guys know the Old Testament. They're experts at it. They're, they're the pros at it. So he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, who was at the time speaking to the nation of Israel, who was going through all the religious motions, doing all the sacrifices, doing all the rituals that they needed, yet had become completely spiritually corrupt. This is what Hosea says. God tells the prophet to say this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I love the message. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. I am after love that lasts, not more religion. Such powerful truth there. God deplores, my friends, God deplores religious practice that is devoid of genu a genuine heartfelt love and goodness and kindness for God and for those that we're serving and for others. It's impossible, totally impossible to please God by serving him, by sacrificing and not doing bad things or doing good things for him and not absolutely loving other people. It's impossible. And we think that we can get away with that so often. We think we can put people in categories of this bad, this bad, this bad, not as bad, not as bad, kind of bad, a little bit bad. Not, you know. We think we can do that. And our flesh, I know we struggle with that all the time, but Jesus is saying, no, he, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is telling the religious leaders that they are preoccupied, they're so preoccupied with ritual purity above all that they cannot see the spiritual needs of people. 
I think we get caught in that trap sometimes too. Look what they're doing. Look what they represent. Look what the, look what the flag they're waving. Look at all that stuff. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't look at that. Love them. They have a need that's so great. So great. What Jesus is doing here, he's casting a vision for a kingdom which mercy is the central value. He's, he's changing everything. It's about mercy, people. Rather than avoiding sinners and associating with only religious people, Jesus, guided by mercy, chooses to live among and announce salvation to sinners. Actually, he was accused of doing this in a negative way. In just a few chapters, we're going to look at it. When Jesus is talking about himself, he says this in chapter 11. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was supposed to be a put down. Jesus is probably going, that's right. That's it. Thank you. I'll take it. I'll take that moniker. That's what he was all about. The obvious truth is that if Jesus was a friend of sinners, we should be too. That's the message here. We need to be willing to invest our lives in those that don't know Jesus, to model for them and to share with them what grace and the mercy of Jesus actually looks like. And really, we do this. It's not that hard because we do it. You don't have to go, leave. okay, what do I do? I got to go on the mission field to do that? <laughs> you live in it. You are in it right now. The best place for us to do this is in our natural social settings that we have. They're, they're all around us. You know, but I'm talking about work. I'm talking about our neighborhood, the gym, our kids' school, their sports teams. These are the perfect places to shine the light of Christ and to show the mercy and grace of God. But let me encourage you to go, though, beyond surface relationships. I think that's the hardest part for a lot of us. We all have a thousand or so Facebook friends, but how many people are we really entering their life? We've gone beyond surface relationship, spending time getting to know them, truly being a friend. Serious, after work, go to the bar. Yeah, go to the bar and hang out with your friends at the bar and share your love of Christ with them and just by loving them and do that. Or have your neighbor over for a barbecue to watch a game. And not, not really, I'm not talking about just for the sole purpose, I gotta get that one. I, got, I, I vowed I'd have three salvations this year. That's, that's not it. Not, it's not, you're not, we don't make, as Christians, we don't make friends for the sole purpose of saving souls. We make friends with non-believers. We invest our lives as non-believers because that's what Jesus would do. That's who we're supposed to be. And out of that is the natural outflow of sharing Christ and sharing his goodness and his faithfulness. See, the reality is we have no idea how God is working in our non-believers, our not-yet-believers friends' lives. Really, the person that you think is the farthest away from wanting anything to do with Jesus may possibly be on the very cusp of responding to Jesus saying, follow me. We don't know that. We just assume all the time where people are. Jesus is modeling for us here, not waiting 
for those outside of the faith to come to us. If we're waiting for people to come into our church and to flock to our church to hear about Jesus, we're going to be waiting a long time. A few people will do that. But the reality is we go out there. That's why this thing I'm so excited about us looking into Young Life. I worked with Young Life. I was on staff with Young Life. That's not why we're doing it. I just know it's a tremendous ministry for reaching middle school and high school students that would never darken the door of a church. That's the whole idea of the ministry. So we as a church and a few other churches decided, let's see if God would want to bring Young Life back to Pacifica so that we can reach the young people that we would never reach probably without that. Teaming up even with the school here or at the church, who knows? That's why we want you guys to come to these meetings because we want people that will come and pray and say, is this what we're supposed to do, God? Because we know we need to go to them. We need adults investing in kids' lives. I remember when I was working with Young Life, I was coaching at the junior high. I was at the high school doing everything like that. And all the time, all the while, it was all about building these relationships. That's what got kids open. They would come to club, then they'd go to camp. And because of the relationship that never would have happened if I would have, when I was a youth pastor for most of the years, saying, come to my youth group. Uh, well, maybe if my friend's there, maybe. It's a whole different ballgame. Jesus is doing a great work. What he's doing is casting this vision, like I said, where it's, it's mercy, mercy, mercy. Now, okay. Now, on to the last story. We know that Jesus, now in this last story, we see how Jesus explains his power and authority to usher in God's kingdom. Okay, the power and authority to usher in God's kingdom. Let's look at verses 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." So in this third story, we see John, this is John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist's disciples come to him. They approach Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like us and the Pharisees are doing, okay? Because you see in the Old Testament, the law required that Jews fast once a year, okay, on the day, on the day of atonement. Yet it had become this, but had become this religious custom. Remember, the religious leaders added so much to, what, to, the, to the law, to now it had become a custom that twice a week, religious people were supposed to fast. But Jesus answers John's disciples by basically telling them this. He's, he's basically saying, his disciples, my disciples, are going to take a fast from fasting. Okay? That's what's going on here. They're going to fast from fasting. And the reason they're doing so is because something new and exciting worth celebrating is happening. And he goes on to give two images here to really help explain this. The first one is of a wedding celebration. Back in Jesus' day, wedding celebrations typically went on for days. Could you imagine that, Bill? 
I mean, days, they would just go on. People would take off work. They were allowed to do that. They were allowed to go for days. And the point, and the point here is that the guests of the bride, bride, bridegroom would never consider fasting, fasting during a wedding feast. That would be crazy. That's no way to celebrate. Oh, this looks awesome. I'm sorry. I can't have any. I'm, you know, I'm fasting, trying to hear from God and, you know, just the way. Are you kidding me? You wouldn't fast during that celebration. You would eat like crazy so you don't feel good anymore. Like we always do. So American. What, what Jesus is doing here is he's equating his time on earth to a wedding celebration. I'm here. The kingdom of heaven, it has arrived. And it's not time to fast. It's time to party. That's what he's saying. It's time to celebrate. I am here, and I'm initiating this new thing of making outsiders insiders. Now, Jesus isn't saying that they should no longer fast, and fasting doesn't exist anymore. Fasting actually is a great way, as we abstain from something for a period of time, for the purpose of becoming less, kind of less distracted and able to focus or to connect with God and hearing from God. So fasting is still a good thing. But this is the reason he said his, his disciples aren't going to fast right now. It's party time. It's time to celebrate. Something amazing, something new is happening. The second image Jesus gives explaining why his disciples are not fasting, it kind of continues this theme that because of him, something new is happening. He said that you no longer take the old legalistic ways of doing things and apply them to how God is working now. Okay? And he uses this imagery of a cloth and a wineskin. He says, sewing, a, so sewing this unshrunk piece of cloth onto an already shrunk, shrunken garment would prove disastrous. As once that garment got wet or you washed it, what would happen is that piece, that you, new piece you put on would shrink and rip the garment even more. It'd make it even worse. And he uses, like, likewise, he says, with wineskins, which were really made of sheep or goat skin back then. But what would happen over time, they would become hard and they would become brittle with age and with use. So putting new wine that's still fermenting, if you were to put it into that wineskin, that thing would break and it'd be a disaster for, again for the same. The wine would go everywhere. That wineskin would no be, be good for nothing anymore. He says new wine needs to be put in new wineskin. What Jesus is saying with these two illustrations, that with the arrival of God's kingdom is now experienced, it's to be experienced, it's to totally be experienced, not with the old man-made ways or man-made institutions that lack joy, that lack freedom, are all about rules and all about regulation, but by what God is now doing through Jesus. Apostle Paul really says it well, really well right here. When he wrote to the church in Colossae, he wrote this. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Off the notes a little bit. The kingdom of heaven. People, we are all being invited to the kingdom of heaven. That's what salvation means. That's what born again means. That's what all this means. Being a part of the kingdom of God, this supernatural, amazing, eternal thing. That's what it means to be a Christian. And everybody's invited. Everybody is invited. That's the beauty of this celebration. 
Everybody, everybody is invited to it, no matter what they've done. No matter how horrible, no matter how ridiculous their life has been out of control, how many people they've hurt, how many lives they've destroyed. That's how amazing God's mercy and love is. It's for everybody, everybody. And here's the beauty and exciting part of it. You and I, as his followers, as Jesus' followers, we get to invite people to the party. We are actually called to do that. That's our job. We get to invite people to the celebration. Yeah, put on your little glock, you know, whatever. You know, you know, we get to invite people to the party. That's a beautiful thing. We get to invite people to this celebration, the celebration of, oh my gosh, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I get to invite people. So how are we doing? As we wrap it up here, how are you and I doing with joining with God to make insiders out of outsiders? I mean, are we lovingly helping people to understand that Jesus has the power and authority to meet their deepest need, the forgiveness of their sin? Are we doing that? Are we helping people? When, we, when they talk to us about their needs, do we pray? When we think we stop ourselves in our mind and we pray for ways to help them to see their deepest need, not to try to fix them, but how can I help them to understand their deepest need? Are we showing God's mercy by building authentic relationships with our not yet believing friends, coworkers, and neighbors? Are we willing to enter in to their world and model for them and share with them the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And finally, are we celebrating the reality of being a part of God's kingdom? Are we living and worshiping? When we get together here, do you worship? Do you think about worshiping God like, oh my gosh, I'm with God's people and we're celebrating that we're all part of the kingdom? That should make us go crazy at worship. Okay, that at least, okay, at least inside, okay, for those, okay, at least, am I okay there? <laughs> at least, in, uh, but yeah, but go, uh, yeah, those of you that are more, yes, we should be feeling like, oh my gosh, I get to celebrate with others that are in the kingdom, being in the kingdom. Are we doing that? But are we doing it in such a way that shows others and tells others that we're a part of the most amazing celebration of all time and they are completely welcome to join? Don't care what your lifestyle is like. Don't care what anything about what's going on. You are invited. And is our life, are we living that way? Not being all perfect, not, don't try that because you can't, we can't. But being Jesus with skin on, in a sense, to people, helping them to see what it means to be authentic and love and care and accept. May we all be aware on a daily basis that Jesus has the power and authority to make insiders out of outsiders and that our role as his disciples is to take part of that process with him. Let's pray.